it's really great to be with you this morning, and I'd love to pray and ask for God's help as we look at this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are powerfully at work here amongst us this morning. We thank you for what we've already heard, uh, words of testimony, uh, prayers, and now having read your word. And we pray that as we uh, listen to it, that, Father, you might impress it upon our hearts for the glory of your name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I um, read an article which had in it a blueprint that someone had put together, I think someone from the military in Australia, about what would happen if there is a big crisis in Australia, actually an even bigger one than the, the pandemic. It could be a bigger pandemic or a world war, something that interrupts the supply chains in Australia. And the question it kind of deals with is how long would it take for society to unravel? Here's what the report said. First day, there would be hoarding and medicine shortages. First week, uh, water treatment systems fail, export systems affected, mass worker layoffs. Sorry, you're probably regretting coming to church. But uh, uh, second week, export mining operations cease, diesel shortages, standards uh, for supply of goods and services declines. First month, fuel and food shortages. Second month, civil construction supplies run out. Liquid fuel supplies run out. Freight and transport services cease. And the third month, employment is scarce. Software security is degraded. And social unrest unfolds. So how long would it take for our society to unravel? About three months is the answer that report gave. And the question in our passage today is, how long does it take for a godly and faithful life to unravel? And the tragic answer from King David is just a few days, just a few days. But what's most amazing here is that even though David's sins are never excused and God never just sweeps it under the carpet and says, that doesn't matter, uh, at the same time, God's plans and never thwarted, never stopped by everything that happens in this section. There are three things I want to look at together today, and the first one is sin. Sin. David commits several sins in this section. He lies, he murders, uh, he abuses his power, and we could keep going. The, the initial sin here is that of taking someone else's wife, sleeping with someone's wife, the sin of adultery. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, says these famous words. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So where, where did David's sins begin in this section? Uh, he's the king of Israel. He lives in this palace. He's up on the rooftop one night. And uh, he looks out at the view. The armies, we're told, are um, out fighting. David is in the peaceful city of Jerusalem. And he goes for this stroll one night. And something catches his eye at night time. And it's a naked woman. Verse 2, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. 
The woman was very beautiful. And there's no indication that what she is doing is the wrong thing here. Uh, She was probably in a privately enclosed location and she can only be seen because David has this elevated position. But as so often happens with sin, David has this fork in the road moment and he just rushes down the wrong path. Uh, He has this moment of decision and he just goes the wrong way. He, He sees this beautiful woman, he thinks of the possibilities and then he starts to act. He looks, he thinks, he lusts and he sends out a researcher. Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. Often there are steps on the path to sin, aren't there? Uh, It could be any type of sin, and it's true for sexual sin as well. Someone has identified 12 12 kind of markers or steps that often precede an extramarital affair. Number one, a readiness, just an emotional readiness. Number two, an alertness, being aware of another person. Number three, an innocent meeting. Number four, uh, an intentional meeting. Five, public lingering. Six, private lingering. Seven, purposeful isolating. Eight, pleasurable isolating. Uh, Nine, affectionate embracing. Ten, passionate embracing. Eleven, capitulation where the the relationship actually begins, the sexual relationship begins. And twelve, acceptance where mutual consent and acceptance is kind of given to each other uh, of the affair. My friend worked in a bank in Sydney and he was amazed that so often on his lunch breaks he'd see married colleagues, not married to each other, but going for lunch. And over time he was amazed that some of them had just kind of fallen into each other's arms. For David, his curiosity about this woman in his neighbourhood It's just the first little step on the path to sin. And in verse 4, he finds out more information about her. So her name's Bathsheba. She's married to Uriah, uh, who was a Hittite, which means he has an ancestry which is outside the nation of Israel, but he seems to now be a faithful Israelite. He's out fighting their battles. And David probably uses his privileged knowledge of what's happening in the military operations to know This guy is away from home. His wife's at home alone. David's married. Bathsheba's married. And what happens next is just explained so briefly in the passage. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That's why she was washing And then she went back home. So David's years of faithful prayer, of faithfulness to God, of leading the nation in godliness, in worship, in battle, just goes out the window for this night. And it's it's a lesson to us, isn't it, that past obedience and faith is no guarantee of future obedience and faith. Just because we've had intimacy with God in the past doesn't make us invincible. How different things could have been if David had been up on that roof just praying and reading scripture and he could have just let his eyes bounce 
away when he saw this lady and he could have starved his heart of the lust. In addition to his lust, uh, we also see his misuse of power here. He's the king of the nation. And what could she have done when he sent these messengers to bring her to him? How could she have refused what he was trying to do? Well, there's a a word here for us. Uh, Wherever you are today on the spectrum towards sin, whether you're just at the shallow end and things are just beginning, or whether you feel like you're in the deep end and you're in too deep and you can't do anything about it, it's never too late to confront sin in your life. Jeremy's a Christian who just found out that whenever he spoke to Uh, one of his wife's friends, there seemed to be this mutual attraction that was growing. And so he talked to his wife about it, talked to some Christian male friends about it, prayed about it, and just made some subtle changes so that he wouldn't be bumping into her quite so often. See, when was the time for David to deal with his openness to sin? It was up on the rooftop wasn't it? Or even before that. When is uh, the next best time for him to deal with his sin? It's when he found out some information about Bathsheba. When was the next best time to deal with it? It was when he met her. When was the next best time? It was after he'd slept with her. That he had all these opportunities, these moments to confront his sin. So wherever you are, it could be sexual sin, it could be financial sin, it could be a sin of attitude, it could be an ungodly lifestyle, a way of speaking. Wherever you are, the best time to deal with it was years ago or today. So we see David's sin, but tragically David doesn't deal with his sin very well. So the second thing I want us to see this morning is the growth of sin. In verse 5, Bathsheba tells David she's now pregnant. She sends this message to him. And now he has this other fork in the road moment. What's he going to do? Should he just face up to it and deal with the shame and the fallout that comes from uh, his mistake? Or does he hide it? And he goes with the option of covering up his sin. So he brings Uriah home from uh, the war to make it look like this baby belongs to him. But Uriah is so stubbornly uh, honourable in this section. Did you notice that? Have a look at what he says uh, in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So here's the true Israelite in this section. David is meant to be the true Israelite, leading the people. But Uriah, who even has a foreign background, is the true Israelite. And then uh, David is too sneaky to want to kill Uriah himself, so he sends him back out to battle and he makes this plan with the commander to get get Uriah on the front line and then have all the troops pull back so that he's vulnerable and so that he's killed in battle. 
And Joab, the commander, sends this message back to David saying, the deed has been done, Uriah is dead. And David sends back a callous, uncaring response. He's orchestrated the death of this man and he sends encouragement back to Joab. So friends, just be aware that sin can harden our hearts. Do you know that? That Psalm 95 was often read in church services. And it's in part because it has this line in it. Today, if you would only hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Sin is something that deadens us to God and deadens our moral senses so that we actually become unreliable guides even of ourselves. And over time, uh, we can become just callous and uncaring. You might notice how when we sin, it's often easier to do it again. So I just want to ask today, do you have a healthy sense, not an unhealthy sense, but a healthy sense of distrust for yourself? and your own motives and your own desires? Do you believe the words of Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all else? Above all else. There's a lot of other things to be deceitful over. The heart is deceitful above all all things. So David's list of sins grows. He, He murders, misuses his power, deceit, misuse of the nation's resources. He's sending all these messengers around. And he's even dragging other people into his corrupt behaviour with him. Recently I went to get a um, leather bag out of my cupboard and just saw it was covered in mould, like so many things at the moment. So I took it outside and wiped it down with antibacterial wipes, put it in the sun and in the fresh air for a couple of days and the mould has not come back. But I knew that if I left it in the cupboard in the darkness there, it would spread to the shoes, to the jackets, to the doors of the cupboard, and everything would have mould. Well, sin is similar to that. It spreads and it grows. And if it had a perfect environment for growth, it would be the darkness of secrecy and shame. I remember in high school, I said these offensive things to this girl in my year. And my, uh, when I got home, my mum had already heard about it from the school and she tried to get the information out of me, tried to get me to confess. And I couldn't face up to it. Uh, I created this other narrative about what had happened and lied. And it was like I started to believe my own lies and, and couldn't even accept the fact that I'd done this. And so mum called my friend who confessed for me. Um, But sin thrives in secrecy and in shame. And it's important to say that there is no way for us to fix our own sin. You you can't, uh, two rights don't fix up a wrong. We can't use our own wisdom to just untangle it and sort it all out. We can't atone for our own sin. We can't use our own wisdom to just sort it all out. To do that would be like trying to put a toddler in front of a grizzly bear and saying, tame this beast. It's just not going to work. Sin will turn to 
cover-ups, to lies, to uh, other webs of lies that you need to maintain and your opportunity for communion with God in joyful relationship with him will be interrupted. Our relationships will be affected. Just like mould needs the light, sin needs the light of God's word. And so thirdly, that's what we find here. We meet the God who pursues. Let's have a look with me at the final verse of chapter 11. David marries Bathsheba and then we read, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But keep reading. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan, as we saw in the kids' spot, is the prophet in the nation. He's speaking God's word to the people. And we see here that our God is a pursuing God. He pursues David here in truth and in grace. He has this relentless pursuit of David through Nathan. And Nathan comes and he tells this story, as we heard, that the rich man with all the animals, the poor man with this one treasured lamb, the rich man takes this one treasured lamb, slaughters it for his guest. And David takes the bait, hook, line and sinker. And he says, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, he burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And so David is now caught because Nathan turns it back to him and says, chapter 12, verse 7, you are the man. This is you, David. And David's now humbled. He knows he's being caught. And now Nathan speaks God's word to him. And it's interesting, isn't it, that a powerful thing is a word that comes at the right moment. Because David would not have been ready to hear this. But now that Nathan has caught him, he's ready to hear it. And verse 9, Nathan asks him, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? You know, David, David had offended so many people, but at the heart his sin was vertical. At the heart of what was going on, he had despised the word of the Lord. God had come to him, we just read a couple of weeks ago, and made these amazing promises of a, uh, the line of his kingdom coming down through David's house. And now David turns around and he just does all these things against the Lord, against God's will. Sin at its heart is always a breaking of that vertical relationship with God by failing to listen to him, by closing our hearts to him, by walling ourselves off to him. And it has social consequences. Often it wreaks a trail of destruction. But at its heart, it's a despising of God's word. That's what we're doing when we sin. God promises David that from now on, there will be trouble in his family. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. He also tells him that this child of Bathsheba is tragically going to die. There are consequences of sin. God comes in truth and God is not a pushover. He's not morally confused. He, he's not willing to just sweep things under the carpet. Uh, he has standards. He's a God of justice. He also pursues David in grace. He reminds David, first of all, of the grace that he's already received. Verse 7, 
God has anointed and delivered him. Verse 8, he gave him Saul's house and his wives. He gave him all Judah. He would have given him more. And God says, I've not spared any expense for you, David. It's a bit like a parent holding a birthday party for their kid and just sparing no expense, just amazing food and lots of friends there and great presents. And then at the end of the day, the kid turns around and starts abusing the guests and says to their parents, you know, I hate you, this is boring, and uh, leaves the presents out in the, the field. God reminds David of all the gifts that he's given to him, that he's received. And isn't it true that one of the worst parts of sinning as a Christian is that you're sinning against the grace that you've been given, that you know the character of God. As a non-Christian, you still sin and it still has consequences, but you don't yet know the character, the generosity, the love of God whom you're offending. It's only as a Christian or the moment you become a Christian that you start to realise how good he's been to you and it feels awful to sin against him like this. In Psalm 51, David's bones are broken. He's crushed. He's aching all over. And that's what the conviction of sin is like for someone who is trusting in God. David's confronted. He admits his sin. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But God arrives here with more grace to give. Verse 13, Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And that word taken away, it means put away, That not like you put away your clothes in the cupboard only to bring them out again, but like you put away your garbage on the curb never to see it again. That's what God has done with David's sin. He'll never be held to account for it. It will never be brought up again. His record will be wiped clean. Consequences of David's sin are still real. People's lives have been wrecked by what he's done. But God's grace pursues him. And remember that God also pursued us. He didn't just send a prophet. He sent someone far greater than a prophet. He sent his one and only son. And John chapter 1 tells us he was full of grace and truth. And in Jesus, our sins are put away, nailed to the cross, not spoken of again. God's judgment has been spent. Eternal life is now opened. Intimacy with God is real and available. And it's also true that when we meet God in his truth and his grace, that it changes us, that it must change us. It changed David. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't try to, uh, he doesn't try to downplay it. He doesn't say, well, I've done this sin, but you should have seen the, the circumstances or the desires that God gave. He doesn't say anything like that. And nor does he say, I've sinned against Bathsheba or uh, Joab or Uriah or the messengers or my child who's died, even though that was true. He had sinned against them, but primarily he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson 
said, only when grace appears on the horizon offering forgiveness will the sunshine of the love of God melt our hearts and draw us back to him. So it's when you know God is gracious that you can come and be open to him and just tell him what's going on, tell him the truth. There have been times in my life I can think back to where I've sinned and it's been that kind of sin where I've known what God wants me to do and what he doesn't want me to do and I've said, I'm just going to do this anyway. That kind of high-handed sin, that willful sin. And the conviction of that is like a weight on your shoulders and like a sickness in your stomach. And you might know that you've been forgiven by the blood of Christ, but the intimacy with God is interrupted. His heavy hand is on you and it takes time to rekindle that joy with him even though you know his promise is true. So wherever you're at on the path to sin today, just a little bit or you've gone a long way, you can change today because of God's grace to you. How long does it take to unravel a faithful life? Just a few days. But how long does it take for God to rescue sinners? Just a few words. Verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. Or we could think of John the Baptist's words in John 1. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No traces left Nothing left to pay, nothing to be mentioned again, a new life to live. Yes, there might be consequences, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm now going to hand over to Betsy, who's going to share a few more things with us. Thanks, Josh. So if you've been following Jesus for a while or if you're familiar with the life of David at all, I feel like during this series there's been a bit of an elephant in the room. And um, as we've talked about David being God's anointed king, as we've talked about David being God's chosen one, a man after God's own heart, some of us have known there's the story of today that makes us feel like that's not who David is. And so today we're going to address that elephant. Um, David, or Josh, not David, did an amazing job talking about God's extravagant grace towards David and not shying away from David's behavior. But there's another person in this story. So what about Bathsheba? What do we know about her? And the truth is we actually don't know that much about her from the text. In chapter or in verse 2, we learn that she is beautiful and that she's bathing And we find out in a little bit later that she is doing a ritual cleansing. So by all accounts, she's minding her own business and she's being obedient to God's law. All of the language in verse 3 says David as the actor. David sent someone to find her. David asks about her. David sleeps with her. He is the active one. She is the passive one. There's not much else we know about her. And in fact, the only words she speaks are in verse 5 when she tells David she's pregnant. 
And I actually think that silence speaks volumes. She has little voice and she has little power. Her whole life is turned upside down because of someone else's sinful behavior. She loses her husband. She loses her infant child. And she eventually marries the man who orchestrated the death of her husband. The sin of David did not only impact his life and give him consequences, it rippled to all of the people around him and left devastation in its wake. And if I'm honest, that makes me feel some kind of way. When I read chapter 11, I get angry and I long for justice for Bathsheba. And I think it's okay to feel anger when we read that passage because we know that what David, what happens to David, we know that that makes God's heart angry too. Because as Josh already taught, when we look in the end of chapter 11, it says that what David did displeased the Lord. When we read Nathan's prophecy in chapter 12, it makes clear that David is the guilty party. And Nathan calls out David for his behavior and describes Bathsheba as an innocent lamb. And in the midst of seeing God's radical grace towards David when he repents, we also see God's radical grace and kindness to Bathsheba. Not because she sinned, but because her life was affected by someone else's sin. God redeems the circumstances around her as well. She is the stolen lamb here, and God does not leave Bathsheba unvindicated. She ultimately gives birth to a son named Solomon. Solomon ultimately becomes king. He is in the promised line of the Messiah, which means so is Bathsheba. In Matthew 1, only five women are mentioned as the, in the genealogy of Jesus, and Bathsheba is one of them. Her legacy is not one of a shattered life, but one of a redeemed one. And this doesn't minimize what happened to her or make date what David did okay. I think it's actually okay for us to call evil evil. And what she experienced was tragic and wrong, and we do see David face earthly consequences for it. But it reminds us that God in his sovereignty can bring about redemption in even our darkest moments. He redeems David's life, and he also redeems Bathsheba's life because both are affected by his sin. So what can we learn from the story of David today, from David, Bathsheba, and Nathan? And I want to offer three encouragements as we close. First, we can look at David and see how quickly a life can unravel because of sin. And as Josh taught and reminded us, we all need God's radical and extravagant grace to pursue us and to lead us to repentance. We can all look to Psalm 51 as a model of what that looks like and to see what it means to be broken over our sin and to feel restored and forgiven. But I also want to encourage the Nathans in the room. Those of you who are bold truth tellers, it is okay to call out sin when we see it, especially in places of power. It was really risky for Nathan to speak out to the king like he did. He was God's prophet, but David could have killed him. We see a history of David not being very happy with the people around him. But Nathan still goes to David and calls out sin. And I feel like in our modern world, we see abuses of power all the time. We see abuses of power in um, spiritual abuse in the church, in 
the halls of political power and corporate world. And it is okay and it is even good for Christians to call out that sin when we see it. We should pray Amos 5.24 that justice would flow like a mighty river. And lastly, if you're here today and you resonate with the story of Bathsheba, that your life has been impacted because of someone else's sin or your life has been shattered because of someone else's sinful choices or abuse, I am so sorry. And if you felt voiceless or powerless, I hope today that you can remember that God sees you and he is working things out for your good, even when it doesn't feel like it. I know today may have stirred some things in different people. You may have resonated with different elements of this story, whether victim, offender, or truth teller, David, Bathsheba, or Nathan, or maybe some combination of all three. And so if something stirred today, do you want to talk about it, or you want to pray about it, or you need some prayer, Josh or me or Beck will be up here to talk about it or to pray with you. And if you don't necessarily want to do that today or don't feel comfortable, um, I encourage you to find someone you trust, find a friend, find a counselor, find a family member that you can um, share this with. And so you don't have to do it with us, but we pray that you would find someone and that you would not walk alone. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, thank you so much that you are good and that you are kind. Thank you that you are a God who sees us. Thank you that you are a God of justice who hates evil and longs for good for his children. Thank you that when our sin is great, your your grace is greater. Let us be a people who seek for good in this world and pray that justice will flow down like rivers. In your mighty and loving name we pray.